Great job. Great job, all of our students. Uh, it's good to see you all this morning, and uh, it's a good day. It's been a good weekend. I got yesterday, I got to be part of the, the sock beating. Uh, that was pretty fun. They took it kind of easy on me, not so much on Michael. Um, I had to break him in, I guess. Uh, and then Carrie and I went around to some different houses, to the girls' houses, and took some video and pictures. And then I got to go home and sleep in my own bed, which is A-OK -okay with this guy right here. So it was a good weekend. I, I know these, these young people had a good time, and uh, some important stuff happened. And I wanted us all to be part of it this, this morning. So turn to John 17, 20 through 26. Today's message is going to build on the theme of this weekend's Disciple Now which was together. But don't think this is going to be a talk to the teenagers. This is for all of us. This is about something extremely important. In fact, when I, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I first started getting into Christian music, I'd been a, a secular rock music guy, and I was converted to listening to Christian music because uh, my girlfriend and my future wife who were, by the way, the same person, just in case you want to know, uh, she, she listened to that kind of music, so I started listening to it and there was a song um, in those that was really popular back then. And if you're my age and you listen to that kind of music, you'll know it as soon as I start listing the lyrics. But it went like this. And friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. Some of you are laughing, right? And, the fr and a friend will not say never because the welcome will not end. Though it's hard to let you go in the Father's hands we know that a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. How many of you know that song? Okay. So, Yeah. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, that's the song they play at the end of youth camp or the end of D-Now or the end of uh, Christian retreat of some kind, and all the girls would kind of put their arms around each other and sway back and forth, and the little tear would fall. And I just, I have to say this, and I hope we're friends now, right? I hate, hate, hate that song. I, I, I do. I really do. You know how uh, if, you're, if you're my age or, or older, those little uh, sitcom theme songs from the 80s and 90s will pop into your head when you're trying to get to sleep at night, and they'll run on a loop through your mind, and it'll drive you nuts. That's what that song does to me. I mean, every time I hear it, I want to just take it and fire it into the sun with all my might. Um, and yet, and yet, and some of you are like, that's my favorite song. And yet, I, I want to defend that song right now, okay? I never thought I'd do this, but I want to offer a very limited defense of that song, that terrible, terrible song. So, so when, when that song came out, when that song was big, guys like me who used to judge that song and the people who liked it, we would say, it's so shallow. I mean, sing, sing about something important. Sing about the glory of God. I mean, it's a Christian song, right? Sing about the glory of God. Sing about uh, the need for evangelism. Sing about the mission of God in the world. Sing about uh, how, how, what it means to be committed to Christ. And, and I just want to say we were wrong. Because that song is about the love within the body of Christ, the love that men and women should have for each other, no matter what color they are, no matter what their background, we should be bonded together because Christ died for us. And that's what that song's about, because we are friends forever in Christ. Now, it's a terrible song about that subject, but still, it is a song about something that is incredibly important, of immense importance to Jesus Christ Himself. And the reason why I know that is because of what we're going to look at here in John 17. John 17 represents the prayer Jesus prayed in the upper room with His disciples hours before He was going to be arrested and crucified. So imagine Jesus knows He's only got a few hours with His friends, a few hours 
on earth before his death, burial, resurrection? What's on his mind at that time? What is he going to pray about? So in John 17, some people call it the high priestly prayer because Jesus, like a high priest, is interceding for us. He prays for himself. He prays for the 12 disciples who were there with him in the room and his other followers of that time. And then he prays for us. Yes, Jesus prays for you in the Bible. Let me show you where that is. John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples sitting around him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. If you're a Christian, you are a believer in Jesus because of the testimony of men and women in the first century who knew Jesus and said, I don't care what it costs me, I'm going to communicate this message to others. And we can thank God for them. So you can look at John 17, 20, and you can write your name in when he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for, and then add your name. He's praying for you in that moment. What does he pray for you? What does he pray for us? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see the glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus, hours before he's arrested, crucified, he's the only one in the world who knows what's about to happen. He prays not that we would be make these big, big churches with huge buildings, not that we would be famous, not that we would be wealthy. He prays that we would be one that there would be love within the body of Christ, that we would have something that no other group on earth has, that you could come into this group, you could join this group, and immediately you're part of a family. And we love you just as you are, and we support you, and and there's unity in the body of Christ. And if you don't think that, you think I'm just taking this out of context from one passage, read the whole New Testament. Over and over again, in fact, every book of the New Testament has some emphasis about unity, about loving one another. That's why our students dealt with us all this weekend. They know it's hard being a teenager. Your prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed. Hormones are coursing through your veins. The world is insane. There's drama all around you, and yet there needs to be a place where there's a group of people, people your age, people older than you, who love you, and you love them back. That needs to exist. Last week, I stood up here, and I I shared with you the the vision we have for the next 10 years of our church's ministry uh, about us connecting with people, about us getting involved, getting out of our comfort zone and saying, I'm going to meet the need of this person. I'm I'm going to share life with this person. I'm going to invest in this person And in doing so, I'm going to hope that somewhere down the line, they're going to see Jesus in me, and maybe I'll have a chance to share the gospel. Or if not, if they won't hear the gospel from me, I'll at least help them go from being this far from God to this far from God, to, to closer to Him 
through these 10,000 transforming relationships we hope to facilitate just through this church in the next 10 years. But without unity, we can't do it. Without unity, we're stuck on ridiculous side issues that don't matter in the course of eternity. Without unity, no one wants to hear what we have to say. This is of of immense importance. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about what unity isn't, what unity is, and then how you get it. Okay? Three parts, what unity isn't, what unity is, and how to get it. So first of all, what is unity not? What isn't it? It is not unity for its own sake. Let me explain what I mean by that. So I have two kids. We have two kids uh, uh, six years apart. Growing up, I loved it when they got along. I loved it. In fact, I used to say my favorite sound, and this is still true, my favorite sound is the sound of my kids laughing. Whether it's upstairs in the game room, whether it's uh, we're outside doing something, whether they're in the backyard, back door, the back seat of the car, and I hear them laughing, the sound of my kids laughing, even though at least half the time I know they're laughing at me. I love that sound because they're enjoying one another. And our, our God feels the same way. Think about it. When He sees us laughing together, when He sees us eating together, when He sees us weeping together, praying together, studying Scripture together, serving together, it warms His heart. It brings Him joy because He's a good dad. He's a good father. But unlike me, see, I like the unity of my kids for its own sake. That's enough for me. But for God, it's not enough. It's not just enough to be unified. There's a reason for that unity. There's a reason why that unity is so necessary. He says it in verse 21, that they may, oh, verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So Jesus wants the whole world to know about what he's done for us. God is not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants the message to go out to the four corners of the world, every nation to have an opportunity. And yet he says right here in verse 23, they have to be one. Otherwise, they won't know that you sent me. Otherwise, they won't know that you love them. Our unity is essential to the mission of the church. And you know that's true. Because you've seen how the world looks at us and the world looks at our division and looks at, okay, how many pastors are, are quitting because they can't handle it anymore? How many, how many churches are splitting because there's too much division? And how many Christians are talking, uh, uh, gossiping about one another in public? How many different denominations there are? How many different churches are, are fracturing? I grew up in a small town, 5,600 people. We had one Lutheran church, one Catholic church, one Methodist church, one Church of Christ You know how many Baptist churches we had in that little bitty town? And guys, it wasn't because of church planting. It's because people couldn't get along. So I'm going to take my ball and go play somewhere else. And that grieves the heart of God, and that destroys the witness of the church. Number two, unity is not simply keeping the peace. What I mean by that is this. Again, when my kids were little, I loved it when they got along. I hated it when they fought. First of all, I want them to get along. I want them to love one another. But the darker, lazier side of me hated it when they fought because that meant I had to get involved. See, as long as they were quiet, as long as they were upstairs just doing their thing, I could could tell myself everything's great. But when there were loud voices, when there were tears, when there was crashing of of toys and, 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 and anger, I had to get up off the couch and intervene. And I didn't like that. I wanted a peaceful house because it was easier on me. And if we're not careful, friends, we can be like that within the church. 
We can say to ourselves, as long as everybody, nobody's really complaining that much, everything's fine. Nobody's getting mad and leaving the church. Hadn't been any murders here lately. Uh, you, know, you know, we're fine. I don't have to get involved. I don't have to worry about how my brother and sister are doing. And, and I want to tell you a story that illustrates this, even though it's really embarrassing to me, even though it makes me look bad because I think this illustrates this point better than anything else I can name. I really prayed about this, whether or not to share this story. So, years ago, pastor in another church. I, I was a good deal younger, less experienced. That's my excuse. Uh, but there was a man in the church um, who every Sunday, he would go around, and every woman he'd see, he'd put an arm around her and kiss her on the cheek. Every woman. Young, old, tall, short, didn't matter how they looked. He was equal opportunity offender. Every woman, he'd come up, wipe his mouth, kiss her on the cheek. And, and I knew, I knew women didn't like that, right? I mean, it was obvious. I had that much social awareness. Nobody really complained to me, but I knew it was a problem. And yet I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. And it's not all me. Any man could have said something. Nobody stepped up. Nobody did. I mean, I rationalized it. I said, well, you know, his wife is standing right there with him. I mean, I'm sure if it was a problem, she'd say something. And I told myself, well, these are grown women. They can handle themselves. And, you know, to be honest, every once in a while, he'd kiss me on the cheek too. So I knew it wasn't a, a gender thing. I mean, I, I, I'd rationalized it so many ways. And now I look back on it and I think how awful that was because, first of all, those of you who are affectionate, like me, I'm one of you, we need to realize there are people out there who they're really uncomfortable being touched by someone they don't know well. And there are some people out there who've been through abuse, who've been through assault, and that's traumatizing to have some stranger or even a, a person they barely know come up and give them some kind of affection in that way. That's not affirming. And so these, someone needed to speak for these women who every Sunday were being made to feel that way. Even more so, someone needed to talk to this brother because deep down inside, he was a good guy. I truly think he felt like he was being flattering. He felt like, I'm just showing these women how much they mean to me. I think someone needed to sit down with him and say, you need to stop. But I didn't do it. You know why? Because that would have been hard. That would have been uncomfortable. He would have gotten mad. He may have even left the church. He may have talked to some other people about me. It would have been a bad day for me, maybe the start of several bad days. That's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. And you know what? The sad thing is, if even one woman would have come to me angry and said, if he touches me one more time, I'm going to put my spiked heel where the sun don't shine. I don't know. If someone would have said something or said, I'm leaving the church, I would have gotten involved because then it would have been trouble. Then it would have been worth do you see what I'm saying? Keeping the peace is not enough. Sometimes you have to disturb the peace. Sometimes you have to sit down with someone and in love, in humility, because you're a sinner too, you have to sit down and say, listen, I've got to tell you this. You are causing problems. You are hurting these people. You need to change. That has to take place in order for unity to be real. So, it's not shallow unity. It's not keeping the peace. So what is it? Jesus defined it in verse 21. He said, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. 
Jesus says, what I want for them, Father, is for, what, for them to have what you and I have. He talked about it in verse 5. We didn't read this part of the prayer, but he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Think about that. Before there was anything, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was, there was Jesus Christ. There was the Heavenly Father. There was the Holy Spirit of God. One God, three distinct persons. We call that the Holy Trinity. That's not a word that exists in Scripture, and yet the concept does. There is one God, and yet they have three distinct persons. He has three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does that work? I don't know. There is nothing on earth you can compare it to, but it's true. Jesus says, I want them to have what we have. I want them to join our party and become part of what we have together. That is the model for us. That is real unity is that we would have within this church what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had forever. So what does that look like? Well, three things. This is what unity is. Number one, within the Godhead, they each have the same goals. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working toward the same goal. Uh, in contrast to what some people think, when Jesus came into the world, He wasn't trying to rescue this world from His angry Father. God wanted the world saved, and so He sent Jesus. And so we as a church, we don't have to all be the same. In fact, it's better if we're not all the same. We should be as diverse as possible. We don't have to look the same. We don't have to think the same. We don't have to dress the same. We don't have to vote the same. We don't have to talk the same. Diversity is good. If it wasn't, Jesus would not have called Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector to both be part of his little group of 12 disciples. Two people who, if not for Jesus, would have been trying to kill each other, and yet they were in the apostolic band. So uniformity is not important, but for us to be headed toward the same goal is. And so Paul writes in Philippians 2.2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And if you ever want to do an interesting Bible study, get a concordance or just use your search engine and find every time it says in the New Testament, be of the same mind or be of one mind or be together. It is, a, it is a huge emphasis. Have the same goals. Number two, they each do their part. See, each, each member within the Godhead has a different function. The father, within the redemption plan, the Father's job is He sends the Son. He is the one who sends the Son, prepares the way, sends the Son into the world. Jesus' job, He comes and He lays down His life for our sins. He talks about it in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's my job. And then he gives it uh, some clarity in verse 18 of that same chapter. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, God sent me. The Father has sent me, but this is what I want to do. No one is taking my life. I am laying it down willingly, joyfully. And then the Spirit's job is He transforms the redeemed. The Father sends, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit transforms. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, talking to a man so religiously devout, so morally upright, that you and I, if we met him, would say, this guy's perfect. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're not making it into my Father's kingdom like that. You have to become a completely different person, be born again, 
And Nicodemus is like, I'm an old man. How can that happen? And Jesus says, Holy Spirit can do it. Just like you can't make the wind blow, you can't make yourself change, but the Holy Spirit comes into you and changes you. Each, part, each, each member of the Godhead does his part. The Father sends, the Son redeems, the Spirit transforms. That's unity. And then third, they love each other. Within the Godhead, there is love. Jesus talks about it in the prayer. Father, help them to love each other the way you and I love each other and have since before the beginning of time. The Father, during Jesus' baptism, don't you love this detail? Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. He comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And then the Holy Father calls down from heaven and says, Behold my Son, who I love. Listen to Him. He almost sounds like a proud daddy saying, Look at my boy. There's love between the Father and the Son. And then Jesus talks about in John 15, 26, talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Do you realize that anything you know about Jesus or about God the Father, you only know it because the Holy Spirit told you? That is the only reason you know anything about God. You didn't discover it on your own. If you read it in Scripture, which I hope you did, it's because the Spirit gave you ears to hear and eyes to see and the ability to comprehend spiritual information. If you heard it from someone else, from a teacher, from a parent, from a friend, from a pastor, God sent that person, the Holy Spirit inhabited their words and spoke to your heart. The Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son so much, He can't stop talking about them. The three love one another. Within the Godhead, there is love. There is love. And in fact... I didn't say this at the early service, but if there wasn't that kind of love, we'd be worshiping a very different kind of God. Because think about it. If God was able to exist for all of eternity by Himself and be perfectly happy, then He wouldn't be a God of love. God has existed within relationship with Himself, within the Godhead. That love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. And when He created human beings, He said, come on, join in with us. Experience what we've experienced, what's been going on forever. So that's what unity is. Now, how do we get it? Well, first of all, you better pray for it because it doesn't come naturally to you and me. Have you ever been on a playground? You ever seen the kind of things that happen on a playground? You ever heard how often disputes occur? Y'all are just bigger toddlers. You realize that, right? The same appetites, the same lack of self-control, the same selfishness is inside each of us. We need the Holy Spirit of God to transform us so we can be able to love one another like we should. But don't leave it at prayer. The Bible calls us, God's Word calls us to action. And so the question I want you to ask yourself right now is, what am I contributing to the unity of this church for good or for bad? Because every one of us plays a part. Every one of us is either helping our church to become more loving toward one another or we're, or we're causing us to become more divided. Every single one of us. And I'm about to ask you three specific questions related to those three points I made about the unity within the Godhead. And I want you to ask yourself, apply those questions to yourself and realize that every single one of us is going to have at least one of these three questions where we can do better, okay? So I'm not picking on you. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at us. 
So three questions. How do we get unity? Number one, what's more important to me? The goals and vision of this church or my own preferences? See, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always, always moving in the same direction, always aiming at the same goals. You would think with as important a mission as we have as a church here in Conroe, you would think it would be easy for us to put things aside and just focus on the mission because it's an important mission, but we don't. We get caught up in other things. My dad was drafted in, late 19, in the late 1960s and uh, spent three years in the Army, including one in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Uh, my dad will tell you he was very fortunate, unlike some of you who fought over there. He didn't have to walk through the jungles and get shot at and shoot others. He was, he was stationed on a base. Kamran Bay was his location. Now, he was in danger. He was often in danger. They, they were bombed and shelled, and uh, he had to go stand guard duty. Guard duty. It wasn't easy. It wasn't safe, uh, but he got off easy in some ways, and yet the food was terrible. Uh, it was, the conditions were awful. He talks about uh, there were these big roaches and at night, you would turn off the lights and you'd hear them scuttling around the room. You'd know, okay, that's going to be on me sooner or later. Uh, they'd get shelled. They'd have to go duck and cover. There, there was all kinds of danger. And of course, in any group that size, there's going to be two or three people in the group, in the unit, that you just don't like. But my dad understood. You don't join the armed forces to get good food and a nice bed and charming company. You don't join to see the sights and experience life. You're there because your nation is called, and you're answering, and you're doing what you've been called to do. And, and people who've been in combat will tell you that when the bullets are flying and the bombs are exploding, you're not thinking of any high-minded ideals. Your whole, whole uh, motive is, let's get me and these guys out of here alive, because these are my buddies. These are my friends. Let's take care of each other. And the Bible often compares the local church to a, a unit of soldiers, to warriors. We're in we're on the front lines. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and the forces of this present darkness. We are at war. And yet, when you listen to us talk, we don't sound like warriors. We sound more like customers. When you go to the restaurant, tomorrow uh, we get to go and, and take Carrie to a, a nice restaurant for her birthday because we finally got a little time to do that. Tomorrow, we're going to spend a little more money than we usually spend on food. And if the food is not good, someone's going to hear about it because we've paid a lot of money, right? Take this back. I want something else. I'm going to be nice about it, but, you know, that's what you do. If you rent a hotel somewhere and you get in there and it's obvious they haven't cleaned that room, you're going to say something. You're going to ask them to change rooms for you. If you are part of a health club and... The guy before you doesn't wipe down that bench after he gets done. You're going to say something, right? Because you paid good money. It's January, so you're still going to the gym, right? Guess what? The Bible never compares the Christian life to a restaurant or a hotel or a gymnasium. But we talk more like customers than like warriors because it's about us. I don't know how many times I've heard this statement. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, preacher, I don't want to cause any trouble, but, and what comes after that, but, is never good. It's never good. All we can think of is, well, this isn't the way I wanted. This isn't the way I hoped it would be. 
I, I had a friend in another church who used to say, people are dying and going to hell, and we're talking about this. And she was right. Churches split all the time. Have I already said this? I said it this morning. Stop me if I've said this already. Churches split all the time. Division within the body of Christ. You know what it's almost never about? Theology. It's almost never because a, a new pastor came in and started preaching that, well, you know, the Bible says Jesus is the only way, but we know better now, and there's lots of ways to salvation, and the people rise up and say, no, we're not putting up with this. That's false truth. Uh, we're going to go off on our own. That would be justified. When you get down to the root of why churches split and why people leave churches and why people get upset, it's almost never substantive. It's almost always matters of preference. Matters of, here's what I want. We're customers instead of warriors. Let's don't be that. What's more important to me, the goals and vision of the church or my own preferences? That's not to say you can't sometimes say a negative word. You have to sometimes. Again, disturbing the peace is necessary sometimes. When you know that we're headed in the wrong direction, when it's a matter of this is the mission of the church and we're not fulfilling it, when it's a matter of this person is hurting and we need to take care of them and we need to address this, yes, speak up. All right, I've spent enough time on that. Secondly, am I pulling my weight as a member of this church? Again, within the body, within the Godhead, all three members of the Godhead, they do their roles. What is your role within the body of Christ? What are you contributing to this congregation? Am I pulling my weight? Another way to say it, you've heard this before, if everyone in this church were just like me, how healthy would our church be? If everyone gave like I give, how financially healthy would we be? If everybody prayed like I prayed, how spiritually healthy would we be? If everyone shared the gospel as often as I do, how many people would, be, would we be winning to Christ? And if everyone acted like I do, would we be a united, peaceful, loving church, or would we be a place that was full of division and conflict because I have to be heard? Am I pulling my weight as a member of this church? And then third, am I maintaining healthy relationships? Am I maintaining healthy relationships? Again, the division within God's churches, it's, either always, it's almost always either a matter of preferences or a matter of petty disagreements. God's people just don't get along. We just get angry with one another. And we let those disagreements fester. We let those disagreements turn into a division in the church. As, as I talk to you about this person who said something rude to me and you're either on my side or you're on her side, choose sides, come on. And that's how churches divide, and that's how God's Word gets obscured by our issues. Jesus in Matthew 5, 23-24 said, If you are leaving your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And we hear that, and we think He's talking about passing the offering plate. But they didn't pass the offering plate in the first century. They didn't have churches yet. He's talking about temple worship among Israelites. 
If you wanted to get right with God, what did you do in the first century as a Jew? You brought the best of what you had, your best bull, your best goat, whatever you had, and you sacrificed it on the altar. And you walked away saying, okay, this animal has made atonement for me, therefore I am right with God. And Jesus is saying, I don't want your sacrifice if you know that your brother has something against you. And you hear what he's saying to us within the church? First of all, he's acknowledging that even we, no matter how long you've been a Christian, we're going to get crossways with each other. He's acknowledging that we're going to have issues. And there's times I'm going to disappoint you. And there's times you're going to frustrate me. And there's times we're going to say things that get misunderstood. And there's times we're just going to be downright jerks. Each of us. And Jesus is acknowledging that, but he's saying, when that happens, work it out. Apologize. Get right. He's saying, when you come into this place and you think, look at me, I'm, this is like the fifth Sunday in a row I've been in church. Well, good for you. And, I, and I'm, I'm sincerely glad you're here. But if you come here knowing that someone's angry with you and you've done nothing to address that, if you come here knowing that you've got bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart and you're not even concerned about it, He doesn't want your songs, and He doesn't want your offerings, and He doesn't want your prayers, and He doesn't want your attendance. He wants you to make that right first. In fact, you and I, our worship before Him is an abomination. It's insincere if we're not right with our brother. So let me tell you what that means, because I think all of us who've been in conflict, and let's face it, that's all of us, we could stand up and say, hey, it's not me, it's her. It's not me, it's him. And can we be honest? Can we just for one minute just be self-aware enough to say, okay, it's partially me too. Because it's never all their fault. Let's get specific. Well, let's just say theoretically, hypothetically, that you're in conflict with a person and it's 90% their fault. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it's 90% their fault. What does God want you to do? He wants you to go to that person And He wants you to only mention your 10%, the part you're responsible for. You don't even mention what they've done. You just say, here's what I've done to you. Here's how I know I've hurt you. I deeply regret this. This was wrong. I would do anything to take it back, but I can't. What can I do to make it up to you? And what more have I done that I'm not even aware of? Because I want you and I to be right. And you don't stand there and say, okay, your turn now. No, you're done. You've done your part. And if you reconcile at that point, hallelujah. If you don't, you can stand before God in good conscience and say, Lord, as far as it is possible, I am at peace with all people. As much as as is possible for me, I have done everything I can to make it right with my brothers. So the question today is, Will you do these things? How important is the unity of God's church to you? Be self-aware enough to say, here's where I need to improve. If you're a person who just naturally is a little critical and you know you do your share of complaining and then some, then repent and say, Lord, teach me to be the person who says what needs to be said. And when, it's, when I have to say something negative, help me to say it in humility and love, but otherwise help me to speak words that edify, help me to be a person who keeps all that other stuff to myself and keeps the church focused on its mission. If you're a person who's just kind of been along, the, along, along for the ride and you don't really fulfill your function within the body of Christ, and you're letting other people do the work and the contributing, pray, Lord, Forgive me. Help me to do my part. And if you're a person that knows, I, I'm just a, I, like, 
I like to mix it up sometimes, and I, I get in fights sometimes, and I have a bit of a temper, and, and if somebody crosses me, I have a hard time forgiving them. Then pray about that and say, Lord, change me. Because all of us could do more to make this church what it should be. I thank God for what we have. This is a church I love coming to. This is a very low-drama church, and I'd love to keep it that way, but you know what? Christ wants to go further than that. He wants this to be a church where it's not just low-drama, it's intense love for one another. Sometimes that's going to be a little extra drama. But see, Jesus prayed about this right before He died, and then He allowed weak and stupid men to arrest Him. He could have snapped His fingers and had them all roasted. He let them nail Him to a cross, spit in His face, more, more than that, He swallowed our sin. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him so that we could be reconciled to our Father, so that we could reconcile to one another and have a family like no family that's ever been, a family that will last forever. And so, isn't it worth it to build that family, to not waste the opportunity we've been given? 